0: Good morning and the conversation continues here on WIP Radio ninety four WIP as we ease on into WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon and promises to be a cool WIP Sunday here in the Delaware Valley. But no matter where you take WIP where you go, take WIP with you for a hot conversation. And to kick off the hot conversation this WIP Sunday, um Pleased to welcome here author journalist Catherine Jacobson. Her new book, Crooked. Good morning, Catherine Jacobson. Good morning. How are you?
1: It's I'm actually fine. a longer name than that. It's uh, Catherine Jacobson Raymond. Okay. So Catherine. readers might have a little difficulty finding me without the last name.
0: Catherine Jacobson Raymond. Thank Correct. you. Correct. Thank you. Correct. How, how are, are you this answer? morning? Okay. You write in the book Crooked about people with back problems and how we respond to them as a medical issue.
1: That's for sure. Yes, I do. Good or bad? Oh, well, um, generally good or bad. Difficult to, difficult to put it like that. But um, I would say that most people consider back pain to be a, a medical issue, and in general it is not a medical issue. And that causes them to pursue a great deal of treatment. That isn't always the best idea.
0: Now, how is it not a medical issue, though? Doesn't it have a cost?
1: A cause. Uh, it has a cause, but uh, the cause is more often lack of exercise, a sedentary lifestyle, for instance, um, rather than, um, for instance, a structural problem. People imagine that their spines are very fragile and that something is going wrong structurally, uh, and that is very, very rarely the case although after they spend time having MRIs and seeing spine surgeons and having spinal injections, um, they're often convinced that the next step is going to be surgery, and that's often the last thing that they should be doing.
0: That's interesting to me. Um, As you may know, because I think I told your publicist, I've been there, done that in terms of my back.
1: Yeah, she told me. She said that you have. How? Tell me a little bit about your story.
0: After a series of four falls, I went into the hospital to make sure I was all in one piece, and they discovered several things.
1: Four, and, I'm sorry, four falls? Falls, yes. Falls off of what?
0: My feet, essentially. Oh, really? Yes. Uh, tell me about those. Um, one time I slipped down a few steps, and then a couple other times, was getting up and down from chairs and from various things in the bathroom. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay, got to keep you on your feet, man. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely.
1: So were you you just accident prone or perhaps you were dizzy or what was your situation?
0: I still don't know why they happened, but they did. Mm -hmm. And what the doctors found, they said, was, first of all, a lot of arthritis in my back, spinal stenosis in a couple of places, and some bones in my neck. We're actually pressing on each other, and when we a good fall, and I'd end up paralyzed.
1: Well, how old are you?
0: Sixty-six.
1: Sixty-six. All right. Well, let me tell you something. At sixty-six, mm-hmm. virtually everyone has arthritis in his or her back. Um, stenosis is as common as having, uh, say, a root canal or any kind of uh, gum problems in your mouth. Um, in terms of the bones in your neck, this book, Crooked, which is going to drop on Monday, on, on Tuesday, rather, is going to be available, um, talks about all of these issues. And and people frequently hear that they do have these problems. Now, in terms of the bones in your neck, the book does not address um, neck pain, neck surgery, cervical issues, because they tend to be extremely different from low back pain. but. Um, I'm not terribly surprised to hear that you were told that you had these problems. So you went ahead and you had spine surgery. You had more than one, I guess,
0: huh? I, I had one spine surgery, uh-huh. and between surgery and rehab afterwards, um, 11 weeks in the hospital.
1: Oh, how dreadful for you.
0: I mean, a bill I saw from my insurance company, not what I had to pay, but what the insurance company paid, Yes. $38,000 just for the hospitalization.
1: 38000 Yes. Oh, I bet it was bigger than that. If you were in the hospital for 11 weeks, you could run up a bill for $38,000 in about, you know, a couple of days in a hospital.
0: So, well, Is that what you had to pay? No, 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 no. That's what my insurance company said. What about the surgery? That was involved with the surgery. I never got a separate bill from the surgeon.
1: Oh, it was more than that. I guarantee it. Your typical spinal fusion surgery is about $110,000, and you're in the hospital for four to five days. So um, that is pretty cheap. So what do you think, what what kind of a surgery did you have?
0: It was done by a neurosurgeon, and it was Mm -hmm. called a laminectomy.
1: It was a laminectomy, and was it in your uh, low back or was
0: it in your neck? In my neck. All right, so
1: you had some problems in your neck, and as I say, the book really does not address that because neck surgeries are entirely different than low back surgeries, um, and there is not the kind of fraud, controversy, and, and uh, overuse that's described um, in terms of neck surgeries. is not, not the same problem where, um, in, as you can read in my book, The problem with uh, low back surgeries is that they are very frequently not necessary, and they're often harmful. People do not necessarily recover well. How did you recover?
0: Slowly but surely, as I said, between hospital and rehab later. Mm -hmm. 11 weeks, then came home.
1: So the, the rehab was, you were in the hospital for how long, actually?
0: Maybe a month. A month? Mm-hmm. Now, were there
1: some other associated problems there? Nope.
0: Nope. How long ago was this? Last year. The my audience will goodness. remember. goodness.
1: So you really have been through the mill. Mm-hmm. I'm very sorry for you. And How
0: are you feeling now? Still have pain in the neck and still have pain in the lower back.
1: Oh, my God. Well, you're a very standard uh, situation. I'm really sorry to tell you that, but this frequently is the case. Are you of normal uh, normal weight, or are you... Okay. Slightly overweight, or what's your, yeah. what's your situation?
0: When I went into the hospital, mm-hmm. I was very overweight. Mm-hmm. After the 11 weeks, I lost over 100 pounds.
1: Wow. Well, well, see, that was definitely a good surgery then. That was, that was definitely in your favor, right?
0: Right. And now I'm probably just slightly overweight. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: you know, there's never been shown to be a specific correlation between obesity and back pain but you know anybody with a wit of common sense can see that there actually is um, because people who are obese or even morbidly obese which I assume you were if you lost a hundred pounds
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, really don't like to get up and move and there's certainly a correlation between a sedentary uh, existence and back pain yes. and and I hope you're moving now, man. I'm get up my best. right now. Get, a, get do- up and
0: run around the office a little bit while we're talking, okay? <laughs> I'm doing my best. I go to physical therapy, uh-huh. and that helps a whole lot. And I can't, I know what you're saying, Catherine, in that um, just, you know, you, the listener should imagine carrying around a 100-pound suitcase on your tummy.
1: Right, or just a big bag of rocks on mm-hmm. your butt. How about that? You know, that will yeah. really drag you down. Amen. So, Amen,
0: uh, but, how, but how do you know? You should, are you saying we should just assume that if you've got low back pain, anyone talking to you about injections and surgery is running a scam on you?
2: Uh,
1: I can't say that because there are people who have cancer and there are people who have rheumatoid arthritis and other very serious uh illnesses. They're people with infections and, you know, and those things do need to be looked into, but they are very, very rare occurrences. And the gross majority of people who walk into a pain, uh, a pain management doctor's office or a surgeon's office or have an intention of getting an injection, you know, they're not, they're not the people who need them. <laughs> they're people who have been unable to uh, alter their lifestyles enough um, to get their backs into the kind of shape that will allow them to go around. No, very few people. Just about no one goes pain free. You know, I have uh, just just about everyone in this life has back pain from time to time. It's very rare to meet someone who says, "Oh, so, you know, I never have had back pain." Um, but in terms of of uh, checking yourself in for you know a major surgery. Uh, or even a minor one; these can really do more harm than good. I mean, you had you had a laminectomy, and that means that um, that in the lamina um, there was a there was a, a small um, a, an increase in in size to allow the nerve to pass more uh, comfortably through without being abraded in any way. And in order to get there, in order to do it. A lot of soft tissue had to be disturbed and the minute you start disturbing soft tissue you develop scar tissue and when you develop scar tissue it often starts to strangle nerves so you've basically had a surgery uh, to free a nerve but while you've had having that surgery you've um, Basically, you've done something that will allow, which causes the nerve to be strangled again. So it can be like a zero sum gain. Then people turn around and they go do it again. Um, and of course, the scar tissue, the quantity of scar tissue increases when they do it again. So, you know, I hate to say it, but. Um, Doing this type of surgery, and again, as I said, don't address necks in the book, and, and I know that you had a neck surgery, but doing low back surgeries on people who are obese, possibly smokers, um, this, these are very rarely successful, yeah. very rare.
0: At least I wasn't a smoker. But in addition to the back surgery, since the back surgery, I've had two rhizotomies.
1: Two rhizotomies, okay, Mm -hmm. so you've had um, nerve ablation, that means that they've gone in um, with a a wand, um, uh, and they've basically burned out the nerves around the the facet joints, Mm -hmm. and um, these those nerves grow back very quickly. So you know that you've had two probably. You had some relief from the first one, and then the nerves grew back and you had another one. Is that Would you say that's a pretty yes. good assessment of what happened?
0: Although they were on two different sets of nerves.
1: Two different sets. Mm-hmm. So the pain went away for a while, right? Yep. Did it come, and it came back or it never came back? Well, you say you're in some pain, so yes. I assume it did come back.
0: That I don't know. I have to mm. ask my doctor about that one.
1: Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So what does your doctor think about your uh, recovery?
0: She's pleased. That's the first time I met her, the pain specialist. I was in a wheelchair, and from a wheelchair I've graduated up through um, a walker, and now I'm just working with a cane.
1: Mm. Well, that's an improvement. Mm-hmm. That certainly is. And um, does she, so it's been about a year since the surgeries, yes. right? Right. Well, you know, you're, you're trying, right? You're doing the best you can.
0: Absolutely. Um,
1: what do you think would have been the result if you had gone into a rehab program, not a drug rehab program, of course, a physical rehab program, gone into a physical rehab program and dropped the weight and gotten in shape? Do you think that would have been, um, would have been a good idea for you?
0: It probably would have been a good idea for me, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure I would have done it had it not been forced to do it by going into rehab for my back. And um, just the structure of the rehab, the control of the meals, not a refrigerator there to keep me company mm-hmm. was a very helpful thing.
1: Mhm. Mhm. So, um, were you in a um, an inpatient rehab facility?
0: Yes, I was. I think. Um, one of the I best see. the Delaware Valley offers, Moss Rehabilitation.
1: Mhm. Also, that was that was great for you. Well, you know, you've had a you've had a tough time of it, I'm sure. And uh, being going from a wheelchair to a cane is a great, certainly a great improvement, but you're only in your 60s. Um, I'm in my 60s, and, you know, I think, I think we have a long life ahead of us. Hopefully. <laughs> you know, and
0: I hope we can get rid of the cane, right? Hopefully. But yeah. I guess my major question, Catherine, and my guess the question that a lot of people would ask is, mm-hmm. what do you do about the pain, whether it's immense pain or just that naggy pain? that you know, you may want to take a couple aspirins for, and mm-hmm. maybe it will and won't help, in that it wears you out. Yes, it can be,
1: it is exhausting, no question. It does wear people out, and it makes people make very bad decisions as well, because when you're in pain, you really can't think straight. And there are a number of chapters in the book that address that, um, and, and what happens in the brain um, that allows you, um, that really sort of compels you to need to make a choice, make a decision, and oftentimes not the right decision and often people make uh choose serial interventions you know they spend a bunch of time and money with chiropractors and a bunch of time and money um, in, a, in a kind of physical therapy that is what they call cookie-cutter physical therapy. Um, and they don't get good outcomes from that, and they move on to injections and, and have an MRI. And they, they travel down this path, and they keep grasping at the next thing and the next thing, uh, always pretty sure that what they need to do is find someone out there who can fix them and unfortunately that is very that's a very misguided notion in general that there is someone out there who can fix you uh what is necessary actually is to start is to keep moving or to start moving again and um as as i'm sure you know uh there's a a real uh, there has been uh, historically um a tendency for doctors to prescribe um pain pills um oxy Codone, Oxycontin, Vicodin, et cetera. Um, and those uh, types of medications, those pharmaceuticals, uh, slow people down a great deal. They make it so they don't want to move. And uh, I don't know, was that your experience? or did uh, you...
0: Oxycodone is in my um, repertoire of intervention pills.
1: It still is now? Yes. Mm-hmm. And have you made an effort to uh, get off of the drug?
0: Okay. And I'll answer that question in just a bit, Catherine. I need to run some few commercials here, so you stay with me. Okay. We'll be back in just a bit. WIP time, 717. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday, and I'm here with Catherine Jacobson-Raymond. Raymond. 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 Raymond.
1: Catherine Jacobson-Raymond, and my new book is called Crooked, outwitting the back pain industry and getting on the road to recovery and I'm very happy to say that I'm going to be in Philadelphia this week on Thursday um, at Zaret Rehab um, which is in Center City um, at 6 p.m. I'll be reading from the book and there'll be a discussion and a um, a little bit of a reception and uh, I hope a lot of your readers will turn up there it'll be really great.
0: And if they do turn up, hopefully they'll tell you they heard it here on 94WIP.
1: That'd now, be nice. And you're on your show for sure. Yeah, I hope do. maybe you'll turn up. Well, you can... I'll see.
0: I'll, I'll see. It all depends on how my back's behaving. Okay.
1: Well, better reason than ever. Get up and go see Joe. Joe Zaret is uh, a tremendous rehab guy. He's got a fantastic facility, and he appears in my book. I interviewed him extensively, um, and I, I could not possibly be more impressed with uh, his approach and philosophy, and uh, his people that that work for him are excellent, so so it's something worth knowing. I, I think he attracts, uh, really, the he's the best of the best in Philadelphia, and, and really nationally tremendous.
0: Good to hear. So now,
1: there at rehab on Thursday.
0: Now, Catherine, you asked me about the pills. Yes, I take oxycodone when it hurts. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, when is that? It depends. Very often early in the morning when I first get up out of bed Mm-hmm. and sometimes late in the afternoon and before bed.
1: Well, that's not when it hurts, dear. That's all day. Okay. Okay. I mean, just getting real here, since I'm not known for my subtlety, you're taking it three times a day. It's an extremely powerful drug. It has very, uh, very major side effects, which I'm sure you're familiar with. You want me to run down some of those side effects for you? Please. Well, constipation is one of them, uh, sleepiness, uh, lack of sex drive, um, Kind of a foggy mind um, inability to concentrate um, endocrine problems which are certainly associated with a lack of sex drive there's a long, long list of those, uh, and but the worst of them I would say um, are is it, it, the fact that uh, you won't want to get up and do anything you' be just too lazy and too sleepy to do it. And um, as you know, I'm sure, I'm sure your physician has talked to you about um, the dangers and the dangers of developing dependence. Uh, If you're on oxycodone for any length of time, you are definitely dependent on the drug. And if you stop taking it, you have to do it very slowly. You have to withdraw slowly. It may be very difficult if you uh, withdraw too quickly. Uh, you can have flu symptoms, extreme anxiety. Uh, it is it is a very difficult drug to get off of. And unfortunately, uh, over the past uh, 20 years or so, since really the early 90s, certainly, uh, doctors who didn't know what else to do for their patients were directed to take care of their pain. Um, and they put them on the drugs that we refer to as painkillers. These should not be confused with pain relievers. Pain relievers are Aleve, Advil, those sorts of drugs. Painkillers are addictive drugs such as Vicodin, OxyContin, uh, and uh, a slew of others, which I'm sure you've also heard about before. Um, As you know, we have a, a... a national epidemic of of addiction and damage uh, from people being prescribed those drugs. Uh, many, if not most of them, were prescribed the drugs to treat uh, their back pain.
0: Okay, but I, so I it's I not have... good news for you.
1: Um, you know, particularly at your weight and 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 then the fact that you are quite sedentary is not good news. And um, has your physician spoken with you about? Uh, Withdrawing from the narcotics?
0: No. Never? No, you know, we're monitoring um, the dosage and monitoring how often I take it, and she's satisfied for the moment.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how about you? Are you satisfied?
0: Well, I'm tired, and I very often need that afternoon nap. Other than that, I'm okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Sure. Well,
1: unfortunately, this has been a scourge um, in terms of, of treating Back pain that way, and it's it's led to people not recovering. It's led people being on uh, on disability, on permanent disability. Uh, people who could recover um, simply don't have the impetus to to get up and go do something about it. And it's very sad. Uh, I meet an awful lot of people who have gone from surgery to surgery and and think that that's going to um, resolve the problem, uh, but. Part of the reason that they continue to have the surgeries is because they know that they can continue to get uh, the painkillers uh, mm-hmm. after each surgery for a pretty extensive extended period of time. I know I'm, I am telling the story of, of many of your listeners, I'm sure.
0: Let me ask you a question, though. Just as doctors, according to your book, have made a one-size-fits-all set of interventions for back pain, Aren't you making a one-size-fits-all intervention by saying it doesn't work?
1: Well, as I started this conversation with you, I said that there are numbers of um, diagnoses that actually do require surgery, uh, but they're very rare, extremely rare. I mean, I just heard an ad, and actually while we you were in your commercial break for the Rothman Institute, which is you know, one of the finest in, in the country, if not in the world, And they treat people with spinal cancer, um, all sorts of spinal infections that require um, reconstruction surgery, uh, scoliosis that's, you know, an extreme, extreme curves. Uh, They do all of those kinds of surgeries there and they do them extremely well. One of the doctors I interviewed for the book, Alexander Vaccaro, um, is really one of the most important specialists in the field, probably internationally. I'm, I'm sure that's the case. And those are the surgeries he does. He does not uh, frequently perform surgeries on people's low backs who could, in fact, do better if they just got themselves up and out and started moving and exercising and you know, when you have low back pain, um, uh, there's this tendency to want to take to the couch or to the bed or to the, uh, recliner. And that is the worst thing you can do for yourself.
0: But how, but how do you get up and move when it hurts?
1: Well, that's why you need a really good rehab program. And, you know, uh, ironically, um, Joe Zaret's program in Philadelphia is one of those programs. But they are all over the country and it takes a little doing to find them and, and that's I, I spend a, a couple of chapters in my book talking about what one of those such program really looks like. Uh, you know, you're gonna need to have some help. And I talk about the need to have what I call a back whisperer. Somebody, a back whisperer, it's kind of a hard thing to say, but somebody who can guide you through and when you decide that you'd rather stop, keep you going. So yes, is it one size fits all to say that most people who have, um, you know, typical conventional low back complaints uh, do not need to have surgery? I guess it is, but it's also very accurate.
0: And I'd like to say thank you to Catherine Jacobson-Raymond, her new book, Crooked, Outwitting the Back Pain Industry and Getting on the Road to Recovery. Now, Catherine, one more time, your visit to Philadelphia is this Thursday, correct?
1: It is this Thursday. I'll be at Zaret Rehab. That's Z-A-R-E-T-T Rehab. Center City, Philadelphia at 6 p.m. Uh Please come on over. Give them a call if you have a chance, and uh, then come over. That would be a little bit better. You want to wait a second, and I'll pull up the phone number here if I can? Okay, hang on a second. We'll do that. Mm. Well, I'm not able to do that right now. It's in the phone book.
0: They'll find it.
1: Okay, so Zaret Rehab on Thursday at 6 o'clock. I look forward to seeing everyone, and and, um, we'll have a chat. Do you have to have a website? I sure do. My website can be found at Raymond. So C-J-R-A-M-I-N at Mac. Uh, C- i so sorry. www.cjraman.com.
0: Thank you, Catherine um, Jacobson Raymond. For I hope you feel
1: better, Peter. I really do. Thank you. Okay, thanks for calling. You're welcome.
0: And Take it's, care. You too. And Take it's, care. Have a good day. You thanks too. a lot. Bye. And it's been another edition of WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon, um, and I'm pleased to welcome here my next guest, Michael Cannell, author of the new book, Incendiary, The Psychiatrist, The Mad Bomber, and the Invention of Criminal Profiling. Good morning, Michael Cannell.
2: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. Tell me about the book.
2: Well, in the 1950s, a uh, serial bomber terrorized New York City. You might think of him as the first uh, domestic terrorist. It was really New York's, uh, we think of 9-11 as being the first case of terrorism. In fact, this was an episode of terrorism that really brought the city to its knees. It was a serial bomber. He was a paranoid schizophrenic. And uh, the police really couldn't catch him. He was setting off um, bombs in public places, as a terrorist would, in uh, train stations and and movie theaters and, and the public library. And uh, for over a decade. And um, in desperation, the police went to uh, did something they'd never done before. They went to a psychiatrist to look for insights into this serial bombers, emotional life and uh, what we would now call criminal profiling. And, but at the time it had never been done. It had only been done in the pages of maybe a fiction, you know, it was a kind of Sherlock Holmes um, instinct. Um, And so the police showed all the evidence to a psychiatrist named James Brussel, and uh, the, the psychiatrist, by the way, was just about as crazy as the bomber was. He was really an eccentric. He was a, a Demerol addict, and um, he was a, had a kind of compulsive disorder. He couldn't stop writing crossword puzzles. But he was brilliant. He was a kind of genius, and the police showed him all the evidence. And he said, the man that you're looking for comes from a Slavic background. He's a, he's a well-built, middle-aged man. Uh, he lives with an older female relative. He's never had a girlfriend. He has a history of workplace disputes. <coughs> Excuse me. And when you catch him, he'll be wearing a double-breasted jacket and it will definitely be buttoned. About a month later, the police knocked on the door of a, of a draggled house on the side of a hill in Waterbury, Connecticut and a man came to the door, and in fact, that man was the bomber, and he fit Dr. Russell's description almost exactly. And that was the origins of what we now call profiling.
0: Spooky that the doctor got it so right. But yes, I, have I, a, I, have to, I have to ask you—I a question, Michael, and that is, why has it taken us so long to know about this? I mean, we think of nine eleven as the first one in New York.
2: You know, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I, I think that Americans have... Um, a poor memory for violence. We we think of nine eleven as being the beginning of this kind of this kind of terrorism, but but in but in fact, it it, it uh, this uh, this episode concluded sixty years ago when when the police caught the mad bomber. <clears throat> I don't really have an explanation as to why people don't remember this. It was sixty years ago, and it, an event of that kind seems to be if not within our memory, that may be within our parents' memory or, or our grandparents' memory. And, and so it's at a point where it's slipping from, from the memory of somebody around us into history. And that's a kind of, I think, interesting pivot. You know, it's, it's part of our world, but it's fast becoming part of history.
0: And you're listening to WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Michael Cannell, his new book, Incendiary, The Psychiatrist, The Mad Bomber, and the Invention of Criminal Profiling. Now, Michael, I need you to stay with me. I've got to run a few commercials. We'll be back in just a bit. The WIP time, 737. And we're back. It's a WIP Sunday and we're into the home stretch with Michael Cannell, author of the new book, Incendiary, The Psychiatrist, The Mad Bomber, and the Invention of Critical Profiling. My name's Peter Solomon. Michael, how did you find out about this story?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, There's a great writer named Paul Henriksen who uh, once said that uh, book authors can't find their subjects. Their subjects have to find them. When I heard him say that in a lecture, I kind of scratched my head. It sounded like the kind of baffling thing that writers sometimes say. But I've come to think that it's really true. I was reading microfilm in the New York Public Library while I was researching my previous book, which was about um, Formula One racing in the 1950s and the Ferrari team. And I I was reading an Argentine newspaper, an English-speaking Argentine newspaper on microfilm in the same era, in the 1950s, and I happened to see a headline in that newspaper that was about the Mad Bomber of New York, and it really jumped out at me. And right on the spot, I had a hunch that that might be my next project. And I began to read about the manhunt for the Mad Bomber, the longest, costliest manhunt in New York history. And right away, it seemed to have uh, the characters and the structure of a almost of a movie or, or a Netflix series. The, the I've mentioned the um, psychiatrist James Brussel, but there were other just fascinating characters who helped the police to 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 catch the bomber and so I knew very quickly that this would that this would make a good story
0: now if the psychiatrist was a little strange why did they use him I mean it seems to me they want somebody who's a little more normal
2: well um, the thing about James Russell the psychiatrist was that he was he was strange and he was not a well known psychiatrist he worked for the state of New York, and essentially his job was to run the mental asylums. And this was a time when asylums would subdue their violent um, patients with frontal lobotomies and other um, crude procedures. Dr. Brussel had seen a lot of the violent nature of the demented mind. and And so he had a kind of insight into the criminal mind. And for that reason, I think he was the right person to consult. And there's another reason that he was the right person. And that was that he believed that a paranoid schizophrenic like the bomber didn't, didn't lack logic. They just had a logic that we don't understand. And his feeling was that because he himself was a little bit crazy he could slip into the mind of the bomber. He could understand the bomber's logic in a way that the rest of us couldn't.
0: But to be able to predict what the man would be wearing, it's a little strange.
2: It's un- it's uncanny, isn't it? And, uh, you know, when you could barely turn on the television today without, without stumbling into a show about CSI and profiling, in those shows, the profilers are portrayed as genius scientists and they are scientists but in dr brussels mind profiling was not just about science it was also about intuition he called on the freudian theory uh, of his background and he also called on sherlock holmes like logical deductions But he also called on intuition. He looked at all the evidence, and he sort of closed his eyes and conjured an image of who this bomber might be. And his feeling was that profiling was in part about letting the subconscious come up with an image of the bomber. Hmm.
0: Tell me more about the bomber, please.
2: Well, the bomber was a um, a man who was, in fact, from a Slavic background, as Dr. Russell had predicted. He had worked at Con Edison, the the utility company, the power utility company here in New York, and uh, he had he had been injured in a furnace blast, and as a result of that injury, he had contracted tuberculosis. He received very little compensation from the company for this for this accident. And so he had a legitimate workers' grievance against the company. But what to you or to me might have been a a legitimate grievance, in his mind, inflated into a grandiose campaign against not just Con Ed, but all of the allied uh, corporate and governmental forces that he believed were conspiring against him because he because he was a paranoid. And so the bombing campaign for him was a kind of moral campaign. He believed that he was fighting these malignant forces and he expected the newspapers to take up his cause. And when they didn't he became he became even more outraged.
0: And he bombed places like Grand Central Station, Penn Station, Radio City Music Hall?
2: He did. In the early stages of his campaign, he tended to concentrate on Port Authority bus station and and the train stations. He would set off his bombs typically at the height of rush hour so that they would cause maximum panic. But he was careful to place them in places where they would, in that stage of his campaign, where they would not kill anybody, or they would be unlikely to kill anybody. His goal was to create terror, not to kill people. But in the later stages of his campaign, he really set, placed, placed the bombs with intent to maim and to kill. And that, for him, that meant placing them in movie theaters, where there would be dense concentrations of people in the dark. And in fact, he never did kill anybody. He came very close. He' seriously injured 15 people, but it was becoming clear that he would kill people, probably kill a lot of people. and that's what really made the police panicky. They were desperate to to catch him before he began to kill.
0: Did the bomber ever talk more about his motives?
2: Yeah, Seymour Berkson at that time was the publisher of a newspaper called the Journal American. It was a kind of scrappy, middle-market, tabloidy newspaper, uh, an afternoon paper published by William Randolph Hearst. And when William Randolph Hearst died, his successor was a man named Richard Berlin, and Richard Berlin was a bean counter. He was a glorified accountant. And when he took over the Hearst Company, he took stock of their holdings. And he could see that the newspapers were not doing very well, particularly the Journal American, which was the flagship newspaper of the Hearst Empire. Afternoon, all, all newspapers were beginning to lose advertising to television in the 50s. But an afternoon paper was particularly vulnerable because they were competing with this new thing called the Evening News, Walter Cronkite. And so Richard Berlin said to Seymour Berkson, you had better do something because your paper is, is beginning to lose circulation and I will close it if I have to. So Seymour Berkson was desperate to give his paper a boost. And for him, the serial bomber was a kind of gift a great story that he could try to he could try to to make his own and his idea was to write the bomber letters on the front page of the newspaper and he did that he wrote the bomber a series of open letters urging him to turn himself in and offering him legal help and medical help if he did and lo and behold the bomber wrote back these strange cryptic letters written in distinctive block handwriting with peculiar phrases, began to show up one after another in the Journal-American's dirty newsroom down by South Street Seaport. And in these letters, the bomber began to articulate his grievance. And with each letter, uh, the Journal-American, and by extension the police, began to close the the search window. Now, this, of course, was a case where Seymour Burks and the publisher and the New York Police Department were working together. A very interesting episode because, of course, newspapers and police departments usually treat each other with mutual suspicion. But this was the rare case when they came together and uh, worked as a team to catch this serial bomber.
0: And what was the final thing that let it happen to catch him?
2: Well, they had Dr. Brussels' profile of the bomber, and they knew from the bomber's letters that the bomber had worked for Con Edison. And so they began to cross-reference the profile with work, records, files of aggrieved workers in the Con Ed uh, archive, and eventually, the correspondence with the bomber yielded the year in which the bomber, or the date in which of the bomber's injury, and they were able to find that in the in the Con Ed files. And at that point, they had a pretty good sense that that worker, whose name was George Metesky, that former worker. He he fit Doctor Russell's profile, and so they went to Waterbury, Connecticut, and they arrested him. And the bomber, George Metesky, very readily cooperated with the police to an almost uh, bizarre degree. He was enthusiastically um, shared all the details of his bombing campaign with the police, and he had an uncanny memory for each of these bombs and the circumstances by which he had placed them.
0: And I'd like to say thank you to Michael Cannell, author of the new book, Incendiary, The Psychiatrist, the Mad Bomber, and the Invention of Criminal Profiling. It's a fascinating story about something that happened in the 1950s that's as relevant as today. Thank you, Michael. Thank
2: you so much for having me.
0: My pleasure. And it's been another edition of WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. Thank you to Phil Jackson, my morning producer, and Ann Tiedman Solomon, my dear wife and associate producer. Couldn't do the show without either one of you. And I want to say stay tuned for listening with Sunny Hill. Always interesting and provocative discussion in the living room. Nothing left to say but see you soon.